This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Yeah, my mother is not expendable. And your mother is not expendable. And our brothers and sisters are not expendable. And we're not going to accept a premise that human life is disposable and we're not going to put a dollar figure on human life here in maryland uh, some of the messaging coming out of the administration doesn't match you had the surgeon general and anthony fauci saying things that were almost completely opposite of that yesterday so we're just trying to take the best advice we can from the scientists and all the experts we're not victims of circumstance we can make decisions to meet moments. And this is a moment we need to make tough decisions. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Virginia Heffernan. So I don't want to be egocentric, but I'm going to have to be epicentric. See that? Here in New York, where rates of COVID are doubling about every three days. So I'm going to begin with the word from my governor. And I respect all the governors of Trump listeners, but I'm going to talk a little bit about Andrew Cuomo. Now, I really recommend, and I I think you'll respect this, I recommend skipping any appearance by the president on the subject of COVID and the coronavirus. At those things, he's doling out really dangerous racism and lies. He's hit bottom. They should not be shown, and they should be censored as public health hazards. Back to Cuomo. He spoke this morning from the massive Javits Center in Manhattan. That's just so you know, the place where Team Hillary watched the returns of the 2016 election. Um... Okay, never mind. The Javits is being repurposed with a thousand bed emergency hospital for the sick and dying. Cuomo has managed to scare up medical supplies, but not nearly enough. And one thing that's really useful about these Cuomo appearances every day, national news at 11 a.m. Eastern time. One of the best things about them is that he doesn't pull any punches. He can deliver bad news and news that doesn't redound to his glory. And what he just said very simply is, we haven't flattened the curve. The curve is actually increasing. That's where he cited the fact that cases in New York are, and this is just diagnosed cases, are doubling every three days. So Cuomo has come to juggle New York City, New York State, and has started to tell the Trump administration how to govern. The federal government should be listening to him. They are sitting on ventilators, and Dr. Fauci has stopped briefing people. He's been shut out of the usual briefings. We've got to demand to hear from Fauci. So we're in the thick of it here in New York, as everyone else is across the country and the world, even as the thick looks different to everyone. Cherish your lungs and your breath and every breath you draw with your loved ones. As Cuomo, our new sage says, stay socially distant, but spiritually close. My guest today is Ellie Mistal. He's the justice correspondent at The Nation and himself an all-around actual sage. I'm looking forward to talking to him about the politics of coronavirus, about a mutual friend of ours who's recently been put on a ventilator, and so much more. Ellie, welcome to Trumpcast. 
Thank you for having me. I'm so happy also to get to see you in video Zoom. <laughs> Small blessings. Everybody is uh, learning about what the uh, what the kids have been doing for 10 years now. Yeah, exactly. But they're not all putting... Have you noticed everyone seems to have Robert Caro's The Power Broker in their shelves behind them? <laughs> <laughs> It's so funny to me because like one of the, you know, I do a lot of the books on the, on the Kindle now. Um, and the thing that I feel like I've missed the most is like having those like big shelves of books where you can show I'm an educated person. Right. What, like, where's your Westlaw? Like, aren't you supposed to have a whole shelf of those gray with the red lines on them? Well, thank you for taking time out from homeschooling and playing hide and seek and scavenger hunts with your kids to do this and get back to our old work, which is being terrified of this president mm, and, and everything he's doing. That's funny. The, the, the fear is uh, so acute right now um, because of the virus. But one of the reasons why, I mean, I have been self quarantining uh, almost all of March. I've been out twice in March. Um, the last time I was anybody in my family was out in any kind of significant way was March 6th before I kind of was, I pulled the kids out of school before they closed the schools and, and all that. I started this basically a week before the government told me to. Mm -hmm. And my insight was simply the press conference where Trump put Mike Pence in charge. And when I saw that, I was just like, Oh God, we're all going to die. Because like once you, if if, you, I mean, Virginia, we covered this for so long. If you just match up the fact that we have a corrupt, incompetent president and then start looking at like what was happening in other countries with the virus, you could tell that we would be at this point. You could tell that this this president would not take it seriously. You could tell that Mr. Anti-Science, Anti-Gay Bigot Man was not going to be on the ball with the with the hardware that we were going to need for this uh, situation. So I anticipated, you know, kind of early in March that like, wow, this is going to get this is going to get serious and quickly um, in part because this administration is so incompetent. I've been interested in the sort of split between those of us who delight in the fact that we are, I shouldn't say those of us, those of them who delight in the fact that we're still at spring break and bowling and going to the Senate gym. And then those of us who I feel like someone recently said, you know, in October, I knew this was happening. And I, it's it's like all those people that said they knew Trump was going to be elected, you know, in June, that they were Nate Silver didn't have it right. Of course, we'll always wonder what would have happened if we had acted with dispatch in January when we were seeing Wuhan and when we could have taken steps to shut the schools then, not long after after vacation, after the Christmas break. There's always that balance between paranoia and proactivity. That's why you need a government. That's why you need experts. If the government tells you don't panic, and I kept being surprised in the lead up to this. When the government tells you not to panic, it is natural to think, okay, I don't, I shouldn't panic, except mm-hmm. for this government, right? Like it's, it, there, there were yes. people who were saying like, oh, it's not going to be so bad. Oh, we're going to be fine. I would ask those people, who's telling you that? Donald yes. Trump. When was the last time he said he made a true statement? You have to match up the everything you know about the man in order to kind of seen the crisis coming correctly, because it is natural and generally appropriate for us to trust our government officials um, to to help us make that distinction between paranoia and preparedness, between paranoia and proactivity. You have to trust the government that the government is going to be proactive when it needs to be. 
You know, sometimes I think about, you know, going, going back to the Republican primary, we're accustomed to being a nation of devils. We know that we suck or half of us suck or lots of us suck, but we are not accustomed to our system just like the opening gate after gate to let an illegitimate president like this, who's obviously dangerously psychopathic or without psychology and with this incredibly cruel streak. I just go back over and over again to what happened here. Like, it, it's just a Greek tragedy, a terrible pool of Republican candidates coming all the way to, you know, Russian interference, exploitation of racism. It's just like seeing, and especially now, it's like seeing, I don't know, it reminds me of seeing the firefighters pour into Tower 2 with all this heroism and knowing backward how it's going to end. And I don't want to sound apocalyptic, but this is the thing we've been warning about. A president with no capacity to learn, with no flexibility, with who's reactive in the extreme, who's a solipsism assist of the present moment, who's, you know, always feeling embattled and who's arrogant and who doesn't conform to the rule of law. And one day he's going to be hit sideways. You know, in some ways you we had to, we had to, kind of almost manufacture a bottom. That's what the the law does in a way with the impeachment. Make a situation where it's dire on a symbolic level that we have a president who doesn't care about the law. And then we saw that the Republicans also didn't care about the law with him. And now we're down to nature. Now we're down to the virus that you can't not care about. Everybody said um, from the moment he was elected that, you know, the biggest threat was going to come when there was a crisis not of his making. Yes. We've spent three years dealing with crises that he himself engineered and designed. This is the first thing that he did not do himself. And mm-hmm. how is he going to react when something that he couldn't control, that he wasn't responsible for, um, started to rack the nation? And we're seeing the kind of predictable results. It's like people said during the pri- during the Republican primaries back in 2015 and 2016. It's actually important as much as I hate Republicans, and I hate some Republicans, right? In, in the normal course of business, I hate me some Republicans. But it is important for us to have two functioning parties. Mm-hmm. And this is what happens when you don't. Like, it is important for us for as, a, as a country, it's important for me as a Democrat, that the Republican Party functions appropriately. Mm-hmm. Because when mm-hmm. it doesn't, you put yourself into a situation um, that we have right now. And it's, and, you know, again, we started talking about fear. You try to be jokey and you try to be light about it, but it's, it's terrifying. And it's terrifying in part because we're being led by idiots. Yeah. Speaking of trying not to be fearful, both of us are at home with kids. Um, yours are slightly younger than mine. But, uh, you know, I hate this side of me that, and I've had a little bit of it all along, but now I really do try to joke about it. You feel like you're one of those, was it Roberto Benini or, you know, those Holocaust movies where someone was always a clowny person with the kids to pretend it was all fine. And I, I really don't know. And maybe let's get to that because kids are such good embodiments of vulnerability and literalness and naivete. I wonder if some parents are giving it to them straight, how afraid they are, how how susceptible they are to keep them from going outside, especially teenagers, by the way. And and or if people are doing the clown thing and it's not happening and look over here, what have you decided to do? Um, I guess more on the giving it to them straight as opposed to the clown thing. But that's in part because my kids are pretty small. I have a seven and a four year old. Um, yeah. There's only so far you can scare them. You know, I think you were talking with teenagers with a teenager. It seems to me you have to negotiate the rule. 
rules, right? Mm-hmm. I have a four-year-old. I am the dictator of the land. Like yeah. he can't go to the park without me. So yeah. <laughs> for us, it's really just explaining why mommy and daddy are doing what we're doing and not yeah. kind of negotiating with them as to what's going to happen. We've been pretty straight with them. I mean, because, you know, they, they notice they're not, in, even though it's technically spring break, they notice they were pulled out of school, like I said, a week before their friends were. Um, you know, the babysitter has stopped coming. Um, mm-hmm. So that's been a huge change. Everybody is home and that's a huge change. Um, so we've had to explain it. You know, m- m- the way my four-year-old says, Kawawana Livis is actually kind of cute. <laughs> Oh, yeah. In some ways, they're being the clowns to ease us. That's exactly where I was going. They are the ones who are providing the levity um, in the situation, I think, at least in our household. And everybody is kind of like, it's it's weird. I actually, my seven-year-old, the older one, you know, I said to him, like, you know, we're going to, we're going to need your help. We're going to need your help, man. We have a lot of things going on. We're going to need you to be the best version of you you can be. And man, he is taking to that. Like he has a, he has a job now. (laughs) Right, to make sure right. everybody is like, you know, keeping their spirits up. And so oh, very nice. I like that. So also close to home. I want to ask you about our our mutual friend. You're obviously much closer to him than I am. But um, David Latt, your former employer at Above the Law, he's on a ventilator as of yesterday's news from his husband. I heard from him last week. I mean, he's a fighter. I mean, he was just so polite in text he's just he's such a for a guy that did did big law gossip he's such a sweet guy what do you hear from him yeah i this is this is tough so so lad is a uh, 44 year old healthy you know middle-aged man kind of exactly the person that this government has told us is is not really at risk from the virus and he got corona he got covid um and then his story his his story of trying to get a test um, and this is, uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago, is just disturbing and Kafkaesque. Uh, he's got a husband and a baby. And he goes to the hospital with a cough and they test him for flu. It comes back negative for flu, which should have been your, you know, warning that this mm-hmm. was serious. And instead of giving him uh, a COVID test because they didn't have enough, and he wasn't, you know, hacking up a lung. They sent his ass home, back mm-hmm. to his husband and back to his small child. He got worse. He went back to the hospital uh, early last week. This time they gave him a test. This time that test showed positive. This time they kept him in, iso- in isolation at the hospital. And this time they started treating him. I was able to talk with him on Friday over the phone. And like you said, Virginia, his spirits were, were up. But he was, he was clearly sick. He was clearly sick. He's a loquacious guy. And he was having trouble talking. When we got to text, he was texting about how, you know, he was coming, getting out of breath, going to the bathroom and getting out of breath, you know, having a simple phone conversation with his husband. He was posting on Facebook a lot about how he was feeling. And I think he did such a good service um, because there's so many people our age, his age, and younger who think that this, even if they get it, it's just going to be like a, a it's going to be a bad cold. Mm-hmm. Um, and don't realize that even if, if you get it, even if it's maybe survivable, um, you're going to get very, very sick. And mm-hmm. the whole issue here is that you're going to get very, very, you can get very, very sick. And if we have medical attention, you should be okay. 
But if mm-hmm. the the medical, if the hospitals are overrun, if the, if the healthcare system is overrun, you're not going to get the medical attention that you need, and that could be fatal, and that could be deadly. That's people. Um, people have heard this phrase, "flatten the curve." I don't know that they get what that means. You're trying to flatten the curve so that people are not encamped outside of a hospital trying to get in to get the medical attention. Mm -hmm. I've been trying to to show my support uh, to his family um, without Mm -hmm. being, you know, uh, uh, bothering them. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's the best Mm -hmm. way of putting it. Andrew Cuomo's press conferences, he's been pretty uh, to the point about there's a way that he has of doling out information that's like exactly the rhythm and cadence that I need and want it. And ending even with his all heart when he puts up his platitudes on the screen beside him, you know, like, it's going to be okay. Challenges make us stronger. You know, just <laughs> like in some some kind of like kids AV club way. And My favorite I, is when he I tells millennials that they're wrong. He like says something oh, millennials yeah. believe in. That's just wrong. Yeah, yes, 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 exactly. I mean, you know, I know Californians are watching Gavin Newsom and the Michigan governor's been great too. But if this is on your national TV at 11 a.m. Eastern time, every listener should listen to it because mostly I don't know that he's yet made a mistake. And he's quite confident about the developing statistics around case fatality rate number of cases diagnosed and number of fatalities, cautioning, you know, like a scientist himself, that we that our case numbers are all in New York City, the epicenter of the virus, curfewy because we have no tests to speak of. But he's taking this super seriously and he at least has these, I mean, you and I both are, you know, never want to vote for him in other times, wouldn't have liked him. But he has stepped into that void that that Trump vacated. I'll just say one thing that I want your opinion on. I don't know if you heard him yesterday, he said, you know, there are people who say that um, that invoking the various acts that put into government control uh, some of the private sector and can sort of push them into wartime production of ventilators and so forth is nationalizing the private sector. And his response to that, to that giant macroeconomic question that divides the parties, that's all about this bill in the Senate right now was so what? <laughs> I loved it. And he also said, you know, it was like Cuomo to Trump. So what? And then on the subject of reelection, he also said, and it's just so strange to hear a politician say this. He said, people say you are not going to get reelected when you've got all these people out of work and on lockdown. And essentially he said, so what? And it was just, there was something fantastic in his mafia voice saying, you know, basically giving the finger to the two considerations uh, that we hear in the government all the time, which is just extending their own careers and looting. And then this whatever's left of some kind of libertarianism. Anyway, let's talk about the nationalizing. You tilt left, even farther left than I do, to you and me, I think. This is just such welcome news. We should have done this a long time ago. This is the reason that you have some kind of national health. And also the private sector, like, of course it should be brought in line. And nobody should move to preserve Trump, the Trump organization, the casino business, the cruise line business. So what? Yeah, so first I just want to, before I get off of Cuomo, we get off of Cuomo, I just want to praise his leadership because, and you're so right to point out that, you know, Newsom's doing a great job. 
um, as well. A lot of governors are stepping up to the plate. But what we what we see is leadership, and what we see is the experience of knowing how government works and what powers he has and what powers he doesn't have. And I feel like every, you know, it's, it's important because we're, we, we will still have a 2020 election. We can talk about that a little bit later, but you know, so often in these elections, we make our decisions based on likability and who we want to have a beer with and all of these like, you know, weird concerns as opposed to making decisions based on like who actually knows what they're doing. <laughs> And in this situation, you see the benefit of electing somebody who knows what the hell he's doing, who actually understands. It's, it's like government is this like flamethrower, right? And we so often give it to children, you know, whereas Cuomo is like, you know, an expert flamethrowing guy who knows exactly what to burn, what not to burn, where to get more butane. Like he, he understands how the mechanism works. And that's why I think he has been a comforting leadership voice during this crisis, despite the fact that, you know, politically, I'm like way to the left of him or whatever, right? Like the, the politics can, can kind of go to the side because what we need right now is somebody who understands how all the levers work. And he clearly does. Newsom clearly does. And that's, mm-hmm. you know, that's why they've been affected. So moving on to the to the nationalization question. Yes, I obviously I have no problem with coming up with some kind of, you know, 50 we have 50 states, we need a 50 state solution. That solution is supposed to be the national government and this is I think an excellent time to talk about why federalism, which is the thing that Republicans and especially Republican lawyers latch on to, why that has been so stupid and has been so stupid for at least 100 years since we were able to get to the West Coast without having to eat people on the way, all right? Like, we have a national country, and occasionally we need national responses. This is one of them. We need to be saving, on the particular point of, like, who gets bailed out or what, we need to be saving people, not corporations, all right? Mitt Romney was wrong. Corporations are not people, too. And if you're thinking about what life you're going to save, God damn it, it's got to be a life and not a corporate bottom line. That has to be our first concern. One way coronavirus has has taught us to distinguish a, a life from a corporation. If you have lungs, you're a life. If you don't have lungs, if you have a pile of paper and software you are not a life. I mean, I've been really interested in the idea that this time has come down to what is a human being to our biology. Right? And again, obviously, I'm, I tell left. I'm not a laissez-faire capitalist. I'm not saying that, like, all these corporations should just, like, go bankrupt and whatever. I understand people are going to need and want jobs when this is over. I understand all of those concerns. I'm just saying that all of those concerns are secondary. And all of those concerns are concerns that we get to after we save lives, defeat the pandemic, and are, are in a position where people can go to school again, right? Like, once we're back there, then we can turn our attention back to, okay, what does American Airlines need to blah, blah, blah. Like, okay, what does, you know, the restaurant industry need to blah, blah, blah. Like, there are, there's going to be a time and a place to, you know, I, I live in Westchester, which is, you know, the East Coast epicenter of this, you know, 
uh, crisis. And, and, you know, there are local businesses. Look, Westchester does not have as good eating as Manhattan. There are a couple of restaurants up around me that I love, that I need to not go under, um, that I am willing to, you know, my wife and I have talked about like buying gift cards just to make sure that they still have right. Mm. We want to support our local businesses as much as the next guy. And there will be a time and a place to figure out what the Bayou up by me needs in order so that they can survive. But that time is after we figure out what the people who live by me need to survive, right? I'm not going to my local restaurant. I went to my neighbor's house um, over the weekend to see if he needed groceries because he's old. And I want him to go out like that. That is has to be our first focus. Okay. And we will get to the corporate part later. Mm -hmm. That said, because I'm a liberal and because I tilt kind of very hard left in my conception of rights and liberties, you know, the thing that I am worried about is not kind of nationalized. uh, It's not like, how are we going to help American airlines? I am, you know, concerned about what some of these nationalized powers and really, uh, accruement of powers in, in executive officers, be they Cuomo or um, the president. Or Bill Barr. Or Bill frickin' Barr, right? What yeah. that does to our civil liberties, right? I remember, I am old enough, as I've been telling the kids, I am old enough to remember 9-11. And I am old enough to remember some of the rights that we gave away in the immediate aftermath of 9-11 that have not come back. All right. People need to understand giving away rights. They do not bounce back after the crisis is over, in part because public officials never declare the crisis over. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Well, we're still I mean, we, we are in constitutional crisis. We're still waiting on the caravan for the emergency measures that lets Trump and Barr do whatever they want. And now we're in an actual demonstrated crisis. And you're right that, you know, we're, we're looking to Trump and Barr for crazy executive orders for rushing through their programs like John Ashcroft style after 9-11, taking advantage of the chaos, taking advantage of the anxiety to smash and grab more rights for themselves, more power for the executive. And it's so lamentably, like so painfully predictable. Predictable and familiar, right? I, I have a piece coming up in The Nation I'll imprint later this week. People don't know a key provision of the Patriot Act the one that allows basically unlimited warrantless kind of uh, data collection, right? Section 215, a section that civil libertarians have been fighting almost since the day it was written. That key provision was due to expire on March 15th. But Congress extended the deadline of this key provision that was finally going to go away because of coronavirus. It's just... Right. And where that data collection um, outside of our fevers and our need for ventilators, I don't know why anyone needs uh, data collection right now. But right. It's another opportunity like Mitch McConnell and and Trump trying to ram through corporate welfare in this bill. Ian Melheiser on Vox um, and I were talking and he has a great idea. Any law that they pass under these emergency situations, any app that they want you to download in this kind of situation, it all needs to come with a sunset provision. Not a, yeah. no, no opportunity for reauthorization, no opportunity for extension. If you're going to do some new thing to fight coronavirus, it has to say specifically in a law, as of October 15th, this law goes away. If I download an app 
I want to download it with like Mission Impossible technology so that the app just self-destructs after two weeks, all right? You get my temperature yes. for two weeks and then the app self-destructs and then I have to download it again if you can convince me that you still need my temperature. Like we need that kind of vigilance when it comes to our rights. They have to have written into their documentation. They have to have sunset and, 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 and removal provisions or else these laws are going to be with us for another 20 years. We've talked as though curbing of civil liberties is the civil liberties of people of the spring break partiers of the Rand Paul uh, go to the Senate gym people. But there's also, you know, in other words, the civil liberties that promote the virus, the kind of libertarian, libertine self-expression that promote the virus. In fact, enforcing civil liberties among, say, the prisoners at Rikers Island is a way to prevent the virus. So I think Cuomo has given the order for a certain group of nonviolent criminals to be taken out of custody and nonviolent inmates to be taken out of custody so they don't spread the virus in the prison. We're not making the case that corporations need runaway power and that everyone should get to do exactly what they want and violate the lockdown. But the lockdown in some cases has ended up extending the virus. And I think that's sort of important to know. We need to be guided by public health officials on this, right? And this is why it's important for us to have public health officials we trust. This is why it's important to have Dr. Anthony Fauci and not Dr. Ben Carson um, talking yeah. to us about certain things, right? It seems clear to, to, to me and I think to a lot of people that the situation that we have in prisons right now is critical. It seems like it's a critical uh, opportunity to not just spread the disease, but then we have a population that it's harder to, to, to get medical attention to and that people don't care about. Yes, it would be. it's in the category of civil liberties to think, to think about prisoners' rights, but it's also the, in the category of humanitarian efforts. Yes. And if we think about the humanitarian need that we have in our prisons, and to say nothing of, you know, Trump hasn't said a lot about the camps where he's keeping kids. I am worried about the health and hygiene situations in those camps, considering this administration has gone so far as to say that these people don't need toothbrushes. Yeah. So listeners know that I just have retreated to my comfort place of reading books about past periods because I can't tolerate the present. And I highly recommend Procopius's account of the uh, plague of Justinian in the year 550. Wow, um, you went Byzantine. Because I I was like, if unless the plague killed 100 million people, it's not as scary as the present moment. So I have to go back to the, you know, first nine or 10 of the 10 of the now 11 plagues, great plagues. But it's interesting how often they happen during periods of tyranny or siege. For instance, that one uh, the the Romans were besieged by the Spartans. And also what's come out of some of this reading in Camus' plague, the Poe's Mask of the Red Death, Chaucer, Boccaccio, is that the idea that some people deserve the virus and some people don't, and some people, even though... Pericles and Marcus Aurelius and all these gods or all these all these leaders die of the disease. We sustain the idea that only prisoners, that only Asians, and by the way, it was Asians back then too in the Ottoman Empire that deserved the disease because they brought exotic somethings. And even I've got to say, on the left, among the people you know we might know, there's some idea that a 
healthy person who's a marathoner or who is exposed to viruses shouldn't get it. Or a non-smoker. I've heard a lot of talk about, you know, my brother's a serious asthmatic. So they say, well, if you don't have asthma, you're going to be okay. You're going to survive it. Or you don't have emphysema or you don't have diabetes. Often diseases that we associate with metabolic syndrome and with the poor. And I feel like that we have lots of proxies now for talking about how the good people don't get it and the bad people do, whether that's the rich don't get it or because they can buy their way out of it or the, you know, or people with terrible health habits and diets and, you know, who aren't up to snuff on their gluten-free diet. And that is just inhumane. And it is the way that we start thinking that 2.2 million people in the population can be gotten rid of in a Thanatos thing, can be sloughed off so the strong survive. And just hearing this fascist thinking, this Thanos style from the Avengers thinking, is so demoralizing. And I want you to talk in particular about the anti-Asian sentiment around the idea that, you know, we've seen Trump promote time and time again, that I saw, saw you and Jamel Bowie talking about a little bit on Twitter. The human mind and this goes back to just brain physiology. The human mind is bad at randomness, right? We, the human mind abhors randomness, right? Yeah, that's right. We make patterns where there are none. I'm not making a full, there is no God thing right now. But, you know, that's where that comes from, right? Yeah. Um, we, tr we tend to see patterns where there are none to make us feel better because the reality that it's random, the reality that you can't, actually do anything about it to stop it um, is is just not something that the human mind is is willing to accept in many cases. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. that is why we make up different things that, well, that person's going to get it, but not me. Or that person's totally going to, but I should be fine. We make these patterns up in order to make ourselves feel safe because it's hard to sleep at night if we don't, right? I'm so glad someone said that because I've been wanting to say that succinctly since this whole thing started. Yes, all of us are parsing the numbers to tell ourselves, oh, it's okay, I'm in the sweets, the right age, or, oh, look, it happens more to men, or it only happens to people that went to CPAC and are thus terrible people. There was a bit, right, because, you know, Africa got fewer tests than, the, so if you looked at the map, Africa kept being like, you know, resist, it looked, you know, it's like, maybe black people are immune to the disease, right? <laughs> <laughs> like, you, you, you tell yourself whatever you need to tell yourself in order to feel safe and go to sleep at night. That said, because, and you're so right to bring up history, because, every, you know, to Balsar Galactica, right, everything that's happened has happened before, and it will all happen again. Like, we have a history of how plagues work, and plagues work by the populace at some point blaming an other. Yes, that's right. In medieval Europe, it was the Jews, right? And so, you know, some of the worst violence against Jews in Europe happened attendant to the Black Death. Because they were told, like, oh, the Jews brought it, they're poisoning the wells, they're, you know, people who don't understand fleas mm -hmm. found people to blame for, for the virus. Um, and that spawned a lot of violence against Jewish communities in medieval Europe. Again, you can go throughout, you can go throughout any historical plague and you will find some other who was blamed for it and face violence because of it as people got more stressed and more hysterical. That is the kind of history that Donald Trump and Stephen Miller and his band of bigots taps into when he calls it what I will not repeat. 
right? Mm-hmm. When he try when he tries to suggest that the virus somehow came from China, like the virus is one of Trump's ties. Um, it, it is it is disgusting and it is putting Asian Americans at risk, not just Chinese Americans, by the way, because most of these idiots out here cannot tell the difference between a Chinese American and a Korean American and a Japanese American. So does anybody get a vaguely Asian looking? Mm-hmm. are being put at risk um, in terms of actual violence. First of all, there's the psychological damage that it's doing in this time of social isolation and in this time where we need to reach out to you know, our fellow uh, uh, Americans you know, through Skype and Zoom, whatever way that we can to make them feel less isolated. It is Asian American communities who are feeling the most isolation, who are getting the most blowback, who are getting, you know, it's, you know, there are, there are people who are kind of combing the streets looking for toilet paper. Mm -hmm. Your Korean grocer is fully stocked up and you're not going to your Korean grocer because he looks Asian. Like it's, it's so stupid, but it's also like, if you are one of the people who is being socially ostracized like that, on top of all the other social distancing and the other, you know, you're experiencing the crisis just like everybody else, except that people are being racist to you while, while, while you're experiencing it. Right. So like, that's bad, but that's the best of it because the worst is, is the violence that's been happening. And we've seen stories of people getting punched, getting beat up, getting, you know, sprayed with, there was, I think the story that, that just broke my heart the most was somebody sprayed a 50 year old Asian man with Febreze on the subway. On a a subway. We don't know. I don't know yet if that's a rumor, but there are now videos of, of examples, not unlike that one. Um, And yeah, they're, they're astonishing. And they do bring to mind stories of fumigation of populations in the past. And Trump Um, plays into all of it. Every time he opens his fat mouth it is so it is it is so dangerous and unnecessary and he's only doing it because he wants to keep his aggrieved white base he wants to give them somebody else to blame he understands because the other thing that we've learned from history of plagues is that who's ever in charge when the plague happens tends not to be in charge very much longer like that's the other other part of this history right like people quickly blame their ruling powers for not protecting them enough from from a disease even if there's honestly nothing that the ruling power could have done god forbid there was something the ruling power really could have done then the 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 political ramifications tend to come quick though that's the history that trump is worried about he's not worried about the history of programs and violence against jews he's worried about the history of getting his ass kicked out of office and so he's yep. giving his aggrieved white base somebody else to blame their problems on. And quite frankly, giving Trump giving that aggrieved white base of his somebody else to blame their problems on is the entire reason he's president. One of the things that's come to mind is we're in a man versus nature, person versus nature battle right now. Not what we've been used to, the, like a kind of very human, tribal, you know, based in language kind of battle, like symbolic arguments about the Constitution. Now we're really down to our lungs. And I suddenly realized that for now, I'm tabling the question of the role of the patriarchy. And even because I also like to make distinctions and like to like to try to find ways that this thing isn't random. And I don't think it is organizing behavior any better not to see us all as 
as really, really, at this point, equal. That this is no respecter of persons, this disease. Um, So you have all these social problems, but I'm not going to, right now, you know, the nervous breakdowns will be had in the order in which they were received. And right now, I do feel like we're all together. You know, I do feel like we're all together at that iconic six feet apart. But when David Latt has it and the, and people we know are uh, on ventilators or really suffering with a diagnosis, we're in a, a kind of different part of our brain. And I don't know, I don't know how it happened, but certain issues slipped away from me. And I began to think more about more biologically than than even politically. Yeah, um, not me. To me, the demon that I fight is as, you know, people close to me get sick or people I know um, fall, the, the anger that I have at the people who elected this president, it's, it's difficult. Like, it's important to keep that kind of generally under control, um, but it's hard and it's getting harder. There, I have a feeling kind of almost bordering on irrational at this point um, that these people did this to us, that every everybody knew that this was a freaking idiot and you forced us to have him lead us because you're so goddamn racist and now people are dying and it's your fault. Like that, that part of my brain like fires a lot and I try to like roll, I try to rein it back in and just pull mm-hmm. the string, like, you know, focus on what you can focus on and, and not those larger issues. So that's, that's one kind of, the politi- that's the political aspect that I kind of can't, don't ever kind of lose. The mm-hmm. other thing, and it's funny that you mentioned patriarchy, is that I, 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 I found this to be an interesting uh, opportunity, um, I guess is the way to, is the, is the euphemism to put it, to really assess, you know, how good me as a man, as a member of patriarchy, has been at, you know, sharing the load of various responsibilities, kind of domestically speaking. You know, I tend to walk around this earth thinking that I'm a pretty good dad and I, you know, take care of my kids. And mm. But it, it has been, uh, 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 let's put it like this, telling that with my wife actually home as well during, because, you know, I work from home almost all the time. My mm. kids are often around, you know, after schools or whatever. I consider myself an excellent father. Um, it's been interesting. With mommy home, I mean, they, we're both sitting in the, in the, in the, in the house and they're hungry and there's no babysitter and they run upstairs to mommy for lunch. And I'm like, dude, I'm right. Like, she's on a call. She's like, I'm right here. Like, what the hell? It's just like, you don't know, you don't really know what you're doing and you don't want to. And I was like, Oh no. Cause it's true. I don't know. And I don't want to. No, that's great. I mean, the patriarchy thing that comes to mind with Cuomo when I see him is by the way, since the beginning of the Trump's presidency, I decided that I won't, I'm not going to worry anymore about mansplaining because the president has nothing to explain. So he never mansplains. And I generally like having things explained to me and not my own subjects, of course. So the original mansplaining, no, but I like it when someone has something to offer and explain. So, so when Andrew Cuomo comes out and gives these explanations in his thuggy way that reminds me of my old uh, representative in the newspaper guild, you know, just a guy with an Italian name that has my back. I'm and, and you know, he talks about his daughter all the time and it kind of has that like I have this under control. Let's call it like a certain degree of paternalism. It's welcome right now because we've had this abusive father for a long time. Um, and so it's nice to have him. On the other hand, to your point i when when cuomo talks about being home with his kids his daughter 
And he says, you know, it, it can be hard. I mean, it reminds me of, uh, you know, when I had a newborn and, um, I spent a couple of hours with that kid, <laughs> you know, and we, I was like texting with a friend of mine, like that guy did not know the fourth trimester. He did not know what it is to be cooped up with a toddler. Let's, you know, he took a look at his kid for a second and then he decided it was too stressful. So that is one of the things. All right. Last word is about who's our next emperor. Who's after, after this guy, after Justinian falls, um, who's, who, who do you think's next? What do you think about the election? Yeah, so that that's that's going to be interesting, isn't it? Um, the look, I've written that you know just to allay a lot of fears, the election is going to happen. I mean, that's the, that's the first thing that people have to like get their minds around. Because um, I know there's been a lot of talk, especially online, like oh maybe he'll cancel the election. Maybe look, the November third, twenty twenty, is a date set by Congress. It can only be changed by Congress as long as Nancy Pelosi draws breath we are having an election on November 3rd. Yes. That's just happening. Um, now, there are various ways that Republicans can screw that up. You know, I've written about how Republican governors, if they want to um, selectively quarantine people, could really uh, change the tenor of the election. You can imagine DeSantis and uh, Rick DeSantis in Florida quarantining Miami, quarantining Broward County, but not quarantining the Panhandle. Well, who is that going to help? That's going to make a Republican win Florida. Um, so we have to be, again, vigilant about these kinds of shenanigans. But assuming more or less that we have a normal election type thing. That's maybe two and a half percent more fair than 2016. Right. That's my hope. Yeah. Of course, I can see how we can possibly win because there's <laughs> Russia and there's you know shenanigans and whatever. In a kind of normal, straight up fair election. Um all we've seen is an incompetent kind of bumbling administration uh, handle not just this crisis, but every crisis that he made himself before this. He hasn't grown his base at all. He's lied to his own voters and his own voters, the older white people who believe the hoax on Fox News, they're about to get sick. Yes, they will find they will blame it on China. They will blame it on somebody else. But it, it, it's not an argument that's going to make somebody who is on the fence about voting for him, like come back to the Trump fold. Um, the economy is about to hit a recession, so we're going to see you know massive uh, economic disruption again. He will blame it on somebody else, but people will feel that kind of in their wallets and in their pocketbooks. If it's Joe Biden, if Bernie somehow makes a comeback, like I, I feel like both of those people just have a much a very good shot of beating Trump, and they felt that before the virus started wrecking the nation put it like this. I do not see how coronavirus helps Trump in the election. My guest has been Ali Mistal, the justice correspondent at The Nation and a frequent contributor to MSNBC. Thank you so much, Ali, for being here and we'll have you back soon. Uh, thank you for having me. That's it for today's show. What'd you think? Say hi to us on Twitter. I'm at page 88. The show is at Real Trumpcast. And then go over to slate.com slash Trumpcast plus. I know we're, we're stuck at home and it's a good time to seek out new kinds of content. At Slate Plus, you can get all of Slate's podcasts ad-free. You can find some new ones. And that's for only $35 for the first year. And best of all, you'll be supporting our work. So go to slate.com slash Trumpcast Plus. Our show today was produced by Heroic Melissa Kaplan with engineering help from Richard Stanislaw. I'm Virginia Heffernan. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast. Trumpcast.